I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. Here we go with today's episode. Oh my goodness. Our guest is Alisa Mott-Jones, and you are in for such a beautiful show. I know I say it every week. So Alisa is going to talk about the combination or the integration of yoga and psychotherapy, and it is really powerful. We bring up so much stuff in this episode. Some of the things that we highlighted is that people with eating disorders are obsessed with their bodies, but they are not connected to their bodies. There's a really big difference. We also talk about the vulnerability and courage that it takes to incorporate yoga and therapy because we are asking clients to be vulnerable, to be courageous, to feel exposed. And that is really challenging and can be so healing. I am so glad that we have other examples to incorporate with talk therapy because we keep things in our bodies. We hold on to memories. We hold on to traumas. So I think you're all really going to love this because Elisa talks about how we get them out of our bodies. All right, everyone, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. As always, I have the gift of being able to look at my screen right now at a very beautiful soul. My guest for today is Elisa Mott-Jones. Elisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It is truly an honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you. It is a pleasure having you. Elisa, I feel to a degree you and I kind of grew up in the field together. I feel like when we were both young, we joined. When I say young, I mean like young in like graduate school and our work. We we joined IADEP, but you know, somewhere around the same time, went to conferences. And I just thought of that as I was looking at you. So it's it's fun to be in this stage of our process. Absolutely. You know, it's funny that you say that because I actually started attending IADEP conferences when I was 10 years old. My very first IADEP conference um, was in Orlando, Florida. I was attending with my mother who is in the field, obviously not as a professional, but I worked the booth. I worked the exhibit booth. I would attract people over to the booth. I would hand out paperwork. 
So I very much grew up in the field and I would sneak into workshops and, you know, hear bites, um, sound bites of information. And it was very much ingrained in my DNA, eating disorder treatment. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That's, and by the way, everyone, we will get to the podcast in a moment, but that's also what I love about our community of professionals bringing their children to symposiums and everybody meeting. And it just, it really does feel like a big family. And, and I don't know if every profession can speak to that. I, I feel really honored. So. Absolutely. It is very much a family generation. So Alisa, I am going to ask you to introduce yourself in a moment. I will say and I've had this many times before on the show, you yourself have not experienced an eating disorder. Although, as you said, since you were 10 years old, you've been attending conferences. I have known your mother for years. It's it's like in your DNA working with eating disorders. So Alisa, can you please tell people about yourself because you have such a gift with yoga and psychotherapy combined, which is powerful. Thank you. Yes. So I am, I think first and foremost, a mom of two little girls. I have a four-year-old and a one and a half-year-old who keep me incredibly busy, incredibly grounded, very tired most of the time, um, but also really present. And I found through this almost now year-long, you know, pandemic that we've been a part of, I can never really get more than just a couple of days ahead of myself. They really require me to be very present right there with them. And for that, I am very grateful, actually. I think it helped me along in this pandemic to stay really present with them. Um, I'm also a licensed mental health counselor, and I specialize in somatic modalities, incorporating trauma-sensitive yoga, as you mentioned, um, which is a more, I would say, fine-tuned skill than just offering yoga, which I've come to over time, and mindfulness and meditation really integrating into my practice. And up until really just a few days before I gave birth to my second daughter, I was working at an eating disorder treatment center as an intern. I was doing individual work and group work and also developed and was the lead facilitator of their mindful movement program. And I incorporated yoga and meditation and mindfulness. I also did a lot of expressive movement with them and expressive music. And I found that particularly with the adolescents, that was something that they really, it just really resonated with them. I would ask them to bring in music that they're listening to. So pop music, you know, music that I had never heard before that spoke to them. And we would actually create choreography to the pieces that that they brought in around music. So that was something really fun and really creative that I could do with them. And then after having my second daughter, I decided not to continue working at the treatment center, primarily out of scheduling needs, and um, dove into private practice. And in the midst of Starting up a private practice, the pandemic hit and like everybody really shifted and moved into the world of telehealth. And I've actually found it to be really quite beneficial. I would say 90% of my clients are also moms with young children. So as they are juggling 
working from home, homeschool, virtual school, all of all of the juggling act that we're doing, that telehealth has actually been really accessible for a lot of my clients. And I'm able to reach clients that are beyond just, you know, my physical location um, you know, within driving range. So I've, I've actually really enjoyed telehealth and shifting into that. I, as everyone knows me by now, my mind is racing in so many different directions. I have so many questions I want to ask you. Um, I think I'm going to start with uh, a comment. Mm, I don't know if it's a comment or a question. As you were talking about your work with children, with adolescents, and you talked about having them bring in their own music that speaks to them, I instantly imagined, wow, what a beautiful way into their psyche, into their soul. So often they don't have the language, but they find music that speaks to their soul. You could tell if it's a sad song, what their what their energy, you know, where their 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 emotions are at. If it's an aggressive song with the lyrics, with the way they make moves. I just am I way off base or am I running too far with this? Because that's all I could think of. No, absolutely not. And that's why I did it. And I found that when I first started offering the adolescents, the expressive movement groups and yoga groups, the music that I was bringing in, they would, I mean, that's the one amazing thing about adolescents is they're very honest. And they would tell me, we don't like this music. It's boring. It's stupid. It's slow. Why are we listening to this music? You know, this yoga music, they would laugh, they would giggle. And so I said, okay, start bringing me your music. And I would create playlists with their music. And then when I started to play with, as I was getting bigger groups and you know more adolescents in the group is that I would break them into, let's say groups of three, and they would create you know a little bit of a pod and come up with their own movement and their own choreography. And we would break the song into three parts. And so it was almost creating, you know, like a round in, in a song, right, where they would do, one group would do the first verse, second group would do the second, you know, verse, third group do the third verse. And so we would essentially have choreography to an entire song, and it was music that they chose. It just sounds beautiful. And, you know, again, such a way, you know, we're always trying to find ways, like, clinicians and whatnot, we're always trying to find a way to literally see through the eyes into their soul. And again, that is such an incredible way of trying to understand where they're at and also what they think about their body. Can you speak to what your practice is like. So I'm imagining right now some listeners are saying, oh, so does Alisa do a yoga class with her? You know what I mean? Like, do people go in for session and do 50 minutes of yoga? Do they talk? Like, can you explain what it's like? Sure, absolutely. So most of my clients, it is definitely not 50 minutes of yoga. I typically start with what I call a grounding centering check-in for them. So, you know, maybe the first five minutes of the call, I might do a body scan with them. I might need a gentle breathing exercise with them. If there is trauma, then I am doing more of the trauma-informed yoga, which is all about 
offering suggestions, but never telling them what to do with their body. Um, sometimes it's just sort of a five, four, three, two, one rounding, you know, notice something that you can hear, notice something that you can smell, notice something you can see. So I'm bringing the body into those first few minutes and then doing more of a verbal check-in. How are we doing today? What's going on today? And then kind of back in the middle, we might integrate more yoga, trauma-informed yoga, which could be as simple as exploring the space between the ears and the shoulders, which is the neck. <laughs> um, so, you know, maybe it's lifting the shoulders up and down. Maybe it's rotating the hands. I'm doing this as I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm realizing. Um, maybe it's rotating the ankles or wiggling the toes. Um, you know, maybe it's incorporating a twist. So it, it, I, I tell my clients that ultimately would love them to set up for session in a way that they would imagine a typical therapy session and let's sort of see where it goes. I don't typically get down on the ground because most clients aren't comfortable doing that. So I really try to meet them where they're at. I do have clients that I've been meeting with for longer periods of time where we are at the point of, okay, let's roll out a mat and, and do yoga together. But I would say most of my clients, it's sitting in a chair. It's very quote unquote, basic movement, but can be terrifying for them to be in their body even that much. And so I imagine as you ask them to maybe close their eyes, take a breath, go inward. And by the way, I'm imagining right now, some people listening to this are already getting anxious, hearing me say, close your eyes, go inward, take a deep breath. I'm imagining what you're hoping is that visceral feelings become present and then you can talk about them, talk through them as the process. Am I getting this correct or what exactly happens after people have done this mindfulness portion? Sure. So with trauma-informed yoga, part of why I really found it fascinating is that, again, I'm always offering suggestions and the creator of trauma-informed yoga, his name is David Emerson, and he worked alongside Bessel van der Kolk, who is you know, obviously prominent psychiatrist in the field of trauma. And what they really found is that someone that has experienced trauma, whether it's child abuse, 9-11, car accident, they did not have control over what was happening to their bodies. And so part of the healing process is giving them back that sense, that feeling of control over their body. So even something as subtle as saying, close your eyes could be very triggering for them. So I always give the choice of you can have your eyes open or closed. And I do say, I tend to close my eyes because that helps me go inward. But if you need to keep your eyes open, that is absolutely okay. And then with breath, I... And always working to be mindful of what I'm saying in terms of even, again, something like take a deep breath could be triggering because that might not be what their body's actually needing or wanting or capable of doing in that moment. So I'll say something like, notice that you're breathing. That breath might be fast. It might be shallow. It might be deep. It might be long and notice that you're breathing. And then we might talk about what did you notice about your breath today? So it's really subtle in that sense of offering suggestions without leading them, just like we would you know, in talk therapy, right? Where we're maybe making suggestions, but we're not really leading them to the answer. 
Um, and then, yeah, and then kind of talking about what did you notice in your body today? Oh, I noticed that my throat is really tight or that my stomach is clenched or that my heart is pounding. What I also really love about trauma-informed yoga or trauma-sensitive yoga is it's less about what the emotional attachment to is it, attachment to it is, and more about what is that sensation without needing to change it or fix it or manage it in any way, which I think is really profound because I think sometimes as therapists, we do want to attach that emotional piece to it. Oh, it must mean this. And trauma-informed yoga is really about leaving it right there. You felt a stretch in your right leg. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Also, tell me more about what it feels like that, say, for example, you feel like your throat's closed. Are you walking around in the world like that all the time? Which leads me to what you and I were talking about before we got on the recording, which is people with eating disorders are so hypersensitive to their bodies, yet simultaneously, if this is possible, which we know it is, completely detached from their bodies. So they're hypersensitive to, oh my gosh, I just, you know, I feel my my pants getting tight or I can feel the shirt, like things like that. But are they, they're detached from the fact that they're, they've been holding their breath. They're detached from the flat fact that their, their hands have been clenched in a fist. Is there anything you can say to that? Yeah, I think exactly what you're saying. I oftentimes will have clients say, oh, I realized in that grounding session that my shoulders were lifted up really high. That must have just happened when I got on the call. (laughs) They'll say possibly, or it might be possible that for the last week, month, year, that's where your shoulders have been living, but you weren't aware of it. You weren't still enough to notice it. So I think that's a little bit of what you're saying that they're walking around in these bodies, but having sort of no idea what's actually the experience of living in their body, other than how their clothes fit them or, you know, the size and shape of their body, but not necessarily what their body is doing or how they're showing up in their body. Let's, let's move a little bit to actual the, the actual movement of yoga, if that's the right way of putting it, the physical movement of it. I want to hear how you help clients with it because of two things I'm going to say. So when I used to run residential programs, uh, gratefully, we had yoga, clients did yoga twice a week um, because it is so important. And two things, well, many, but two prominent things that would come up. And I'm wondering if you could speak to either one or both. One, this is not exercise. This is not what I consider exercise. This is not movement. You know, clients would get very upset and say, because the yoga instructor would say, you're taking it a little too far. This is not like, you know, slow it down a little bit because they try to use it for exercise. So I would love for you to talk about yoga and the concept when people are struggling with an eating disorder, how we can help them understand Exercise is a pretty broad term. It can mean a lot. Also, I'm sorry for going into two things. Um, 
we used to, and, and this is from trauma, we used to notice a lot of people struggled with, with yoga because it was very frightening for them to stop and be in their body or stop in Shavasana and listen to their breath. So I know I just threw a lot at you. What are your thoughts? You know, it's funny because as you were talking, I was thinking about one of my many yoga instructors, but who I did my final 300 hour with in California. And she would often say, this isn't working out, it's working in. And that was something that I always loved, <laughs> kind of to what you're talking about, that it really is a turning inward inner experience. That being said, are there yoga classes available that focus more on the outward appearance, whether that is the shape of the pose and needing it to be perfect? Absolutely. And I really stress that, particularly when I was working in facilities and treatment centers, um, primarily um, intensive outpatient and PHP, where they were coming and going and they would come to my yoga class and say, wow, I really love yoga. I'm going to go out and do it in the community. And I would almost have this little like, oh, hold on. Let me tell you all of the things to look for or not do because yoga is not a one size fits all program. It's really just not. And I think there are yoga instructors that are doing damage out there. I know that's not exactly what you're asking, but I think that is really important to emphasize. And so I think when clients do show up at a treatment facility in a group, it's very possible they have had a yoga experience that was very exercise focused. And so I think it's really important to begin with education and explaining who may have done yoga in the past that did feel like exercise because that is out there. We're going to do it a little bit differently. And I really try to avoid the word gentle. It's something I used to say a lot. Oh, we do really gentle yoga. But what I have found is there are clients with what I would consider gentle yoga that struggle for maybe it's the emotional reasoning, that it's almost too gentle, that it's really scary because they're not used to being kind to themselves in that way, or it's too quiet. And so their mind gets really busy. So I, and this is again, through the trauma-informed yoga, I realized how that word gentle is actually quite judgmental in some respects because they might not find it gentle. So I really try to say very specifically that we will be doing poses, we will be doing certain movements that you might find challenging or you might find more approachable. And I really love your feedback on that. So really, again, try to defer to them to tell me what their experience is, as opposed to saying, this is you know, what it's going to be like, rather saying, this is maybe what it's like for me, but I'm not sure what it's going to be like for you. You know, for clients that struggle with dissociation, yoga can be very, very unsettling. So I really try to come back to grounding and feeling your feet on the floor. And if all we do that day is a pose where their feet, you know, are on the ground, whether they're sitting and they feel their feet on the floor, or they're standing and they feel their feet on the floor, I would say that that's enough. I've had clients in, you know, IOP programs that I'll say to them, if it feels like all you can do today is sit on the couch with a blanket over you, and that means that you're not leaving the room today, that's progress. If you can just be with other bodies, you know, practicing yoga today. So I think there's such a spectrum to the question that you're answering, or I'm trying to answer. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So I think just really giving that education piece and really honoring that it might have felt like exercise for them at one time. Something to it, you didn't quite say, but I, I think it goes along with this. I've had clients that will say, I'm afraid to do yoga because it might trigger the compulsion to overexercise because it does still feel like exercise for me. So I might be able to do it here at the treatment center, but when I go home, now it's triggered that piece within me. So I'm going to need to do so many more, you know, chaturangas or something like that. So again, I think it's just honoring your journey and recognizing, yes, it might do that. Come back tomorrow and tell me about it. That's it. That's what I think, you know, this is why when people need to go to residential, I am firm with the idea that they have got to follow the entire trajectory down. They need to go residential, PHP, IOP. And the reason why is just that. When they're at residential and they do yoga, they are still in a contained, supportive place. Now, part of stepping down is you're still really, really involved in treatment. You've still got support depending on the program, five to seven days a week, depending on the program, six to 10 hours a day. But you have a little bit of time alone in your home environment. What comes up? And oh, thank God you're coming back to treatment tomorrow. And we bring it up in treatment. And I also love that you say to them, okay, if that happens, because by the way, that's an if, tell me about it tomorrow. Bring it back. There's no shame attached to it. That's when people get into trouble with their eating disorders. When they go home, something comes up, but they're too ashamed to say anything, or dare I say, really don't want to because it becomes egocentric again with their eating disorder. And that's when things start to spiral, right? Yeah. I think it's also tempting sometimes to blame something like yoga, right? To say, oh, the yoga triggered the need to compulsively move or exercise or eat or restrict. And to be able to come back and say, okay, you did this practice. What about the practice felt like that? What would it be like to do this practice and to contain, you know, after the practice? And can we make the practice even safer for you? Because there is that want to avoid. I mean, can't tell you how many clients would beg their therapist to take them during yoga. So there is definitely an avoidance of showing up in their bodies. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think also what's interesting is as a recovered person, I now know that I want to show up in my body in a fully present way, as opposed to a way of just being hypersensitive to my body size. So you're aware of something regardless it's and and people don't understand the farther you are into recovery, actually, the more comfortable. Not at the beginning, right? <laughs> You've been in this field for a long time, not at the beginning, but ultimately, I feel very, very good in my body and grounded. I also am very aware of whenever signals come up of anxiety or sadness or fear or anger because I'm in my body. 
I know that this is sort of like going backwards and I probably should have asked you this at the beginning, but it's just the way my mind works. How did you come to this? How did you say, you know, again, your mom's an eating disorder specialist. I've known your mom forever. So you've, you've been in the field. What made you say, but wait a minute, I also want to incorporate yoga with my, with my practice. You know, probably a little bit of ego. I'll be totally honest. Um, My mom cast a pretty big shadow in the eating disorder field. And I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to go into eating disorders. I knew that there was an innate part of me that wanted to be in the helping professions. I always gravitated towards the helping profession. And when I was in undergrad, I went to school in Western North Carolina and the program, it was a sociology major, but I started taking dance. And I was that little girl who tried to go to dance classes and I absolutely hated it because I just wanted to do my own thing. And I now see that in my four-year-old a hundred percent, but I, I didn't, I didn't grow up in the world of dance at all. But when I got to college, I actually took an African dance class and I completely fell in love with African dance because I felt like I could do the template of the steps, but make it completely my own. And no one was judging me. No one was watching me. It was about community. It was about connection. It was about the music and feeling it in your body. And it was just this like, this is amazing. I want more of this. Um, And so I kind of joke, I went backwards. I did African dance and then I did modern and then I did jazz and then I did ballet. And so I kind of worked backwards in the dance world. I ultimately decided I wanted to become a dance minor and I took a class in somatics and that class changed my life. It's where I learned about Alexander technique and low-end technique and authentic dance and dance movement therapy and all of these somatic modalities that was just profound to me. And it was like, wow, people really not only practice these things, but become professionals and help others practice these things in the mode of healing and, you know, on their journey of healing. So in my dance minor, I decided to do an independent study in therapeutic therapeutic movement. And one of my mentors is Susan Kleinman, who is a dance movement therapist at the Renfrew Center. And so she really mentored me in exploring expressive movement and dance movement therapy. And I did a couple of intensives with her when I was an undergrad. And so that just kind of put me on this path of using somatics in eating disorders. And my mom really specialized in body image and also in somatic techniques. And so it was like, okay, how do I differentiate between what my mom is doing and what I am doing? And I took a yoga class and I I will completely admit I didn't love it at first. I will be totally honest. I was that person that was like, okay, that was okay, but I need more. I I need more movement. I need to be off the mat. I need to be exploring and expressive. Um, And the more that I did it, I found that it was something that I needed in my life, regardless of if I liked it or not, I needed it. And it balanced out all of the other things that I I was doing that were higher energy or higher impact. And 
through discovering yoga and through my dance minor, I took another course called pedagogy and pedagogy is the teaching of, and I found that I will never be a dance teacher, but I felt like I could teach yoga. And so that very long winded, but that's how I got there was through this pedagogy class and deciding I loved pedagogy. I love teaching and that yoga ultimately was something that I could teach. And so I started teaching yoga. I got certified in 2005, immediately started teaching yoga and started off teaching very, what I would call generic, you know, yoga classes for all people and all bodies and um, just kind of slowly fine tuned, introducing yoga into the eating disorder world. And that's where it all came together for me. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Can you explain, and, and this may be a very general question that's, that's too general, but what happens to the nervous system when you, or when, when yoga is incorporated, especially during a therapeutic session, what, like, even as you were talking, first of all, as soon as somebody says the word somatic, my, my energy softens like that's just the way my body is that's just like I I, I do go inside and I feel my body and whew. so what what happens to the nervous system you know what happens to the brain all these things that that are that are so I and 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 I don't want to say that this is all trauma-based but you know typically in a trauma response can you speak a little bit to it Sure. I mean, I may not be the, the best of the best answer for that, but in terms of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, that the parasympathetic, and I always remember that by a parachute, that it literally is sort of that life-saving parachute that, that comes down and ultimately does create sort of a lifeline for the nervous system. So, I, you know, not, not the best answer, but it's what always helps me remember that this is a practice of the nervous system shifting from fight, flight, freeze, you know, perhaps someone is in, in that place, high adrenaline, high cortisol, on alert, hypervigilant, for sure. And again, I think it is what makes it challenging to essentially suggest to someone that it might be possible to go from high alert fight or flight to a place that is more soft as you felt in your own body that that is possible for someone to feel more like they're sitting in their chair a little bit deeper. And that's one of the things I remember hearing Bessel van der Kolk speak at an IADUP conference. And he said, if all your client can do is feel their butt in the chair, they've done enough. And again, for someone that might struggle with dissociation or struggle with being so up in their head that they don't even feel the surface that they're sitting on, that's the place that I start a lot with my clients, feel the cushion that's underneath you. And and there is something that happens with that where they can feel themselves almost become heavier, which again, for someone who is struggling with an eating disorder can be, wait a minute, you're going to make me feel heavier. <laughs> Why would you do that? Um, but that, yeah, I think that's a part of the healing process, right? And feeling like you are taking up space. It also 
And I, I guess I'm reflecting on my own experience. And, and I, I know we think we can, but the mind cannot think of two things at once. They can rapid fire. It can very, very quickly go from moments, second to second to second. But it, it cannot hold two thoughts at once simultaneously. And one of the things that it makes me think of when, when we're talking about yoga and slowing everything down is I, in my own experience from my eating disorder, you know, I often talk about the fact that I have no recollection of college. And I always say it wasn't from like partying or whatnot. It's because I was in my eating disorder mind. So I have like maybe five days that I, uh, over the, which took me five years to get through college, but I have like maybe five days of memories, seriously, of college. Um, And that's because as I was going through the world, I was so disconnected that I was in my eating disorder mind. I was constantly ruminating about what I had eaten, when I will eat again, what if I can't get the exact food that I would da, 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 da. And the thing about like what you were saying with Bessel, like if somebody can just feel the surface that they're sitting in, right there, you've stopped, even if it's for a moment, that racing of the mind and they are literally present. That's powerful for somebody with an eating disorder even if it's half a second or less, absolutely. And I think with that too, something that you were saying just then made me think about a a recent session with someone, but about how important it is to meet our bodies where they're at. So if someone is in a very heightened state, if we get on the call and it's apparent to me that this is more of a crisis call than, you know, a check-in maintenance call, I'm not going to ask them to sit still, to sit quietly, because that is so far from where they are at. And so that might look like pacing with them. That might look, you know, and there's rhythmic synchrony, which is something Susan Kleinman speaks so much about. So I am matching to some extent where they are to say, it's okay to be in this place where you're at right now. Let me meet you where you are. If we need to move around, if we need to do more active movement, that is absolutely okay. And then as I I notice, as I meet them where they're at, whether that is more movement and not so much yoga, to me, it's sort of all the same and melts together, but then it feels safe enough for them to slow down. Not for me as you know, really important to stress and, and particularly in the treatment center too, you know, not everybody can go from way up here to here so quickly. So very important to meet them where they're at in their bodies first. This is where I am so grateful that the field is not moving away from, but incorporating more than just talk therapy. Say again, remind me again what the the rhythmic what, say what that's called with Susan. Yeah, rhythmic synchrony, rhythmic synchrony. So I'm smiling right now because I am remembering many Renfrew conferences where I did this exercise in Susan's workshops. And I will tell you what my experience was which again, this is why I'm so grateful there is more than just talk therapy. 
Susan would have us be in partnership in the workshop and one would be the one making the movement, doing the movement, walking. Oh, excuse me, everyone. I just hit my microphone. I get so excited when I talk. I'm sorry. I also love Susan. So I just noticed that my voice was getting really loud too. Sorry. So, you know, however the person was moving, my, say my partner, I had to follow. And what I noticed is that when I followed my partner, I actually felt more connected with them more in sync with maybe what they were feeling, even more curious of what was happening. I also know when the roles switched and I was the one being followed, I felt seen, supported, held. I felt like I was in tune with somebody. I, I, I forgot about how wonderful that can be. And that is also why it is important to meet our clients where they're at. Now, that doesn't mean if they're in a dangerous place or doing dangerous stuff. I'm not going to meet my client like at a gym doing the treadmill. But, you know, we it, it is so that that experience was phenomenal to me. Yeah, it really is. And it's something a little bit I talked about. I mentioned to you, I wrote a book chapter within Carolyn Costin's Yoga and Eating Disorder book about sort of three forms of yoga, not forms of yoga, but how do I put this? So a more restorative practice, a more strong practice and a partner yoga practice. And it also makes me think about how I sort of weaved out this strong yoga practice that it's okay to do poses that require strength of our clients. And again, this is where using words like, oh, we do really gentle practice in here. Well, not always. Sometimes we do incorporate poses that require more power because it's important to feel power in our bodies. We you know, do poses that require holding our bodies up in a feeling of strength because that's really important to feel that in our bodies. So it's not always necessary to do meditation or quiet. Sometimes we need to be loud in our practice. And I do affirmations, you know, particularly with warrior pose. What are we the warrior of today? And calling it out um, in the partner yoga practice, similar to what you're talking about. Again, this has to be clients that feel safe and comfortable with each other and are agreeable, you know, to do a partner yoga practice. I would never ask someone to do it who isn't. We do a lot of work of sitting back to back and finding, you know, a feeling of rocking back to back with someone or just feeling another person's breathing. And what we often find is that maybe one person is breathing fast and then they start again with this rhythmic synchrony to find, oh, I started to breathe a little slower, not by willing myself, but because I felt my partner's breath. So it really is a beautiful practice. It doesn't always have to be us as the clinician doing rhythmic synchrony with our clients, but it could be the clients themselves finding synchrony with each other. Yeah. I, I also have to imagine that one of the things that comes up, and, and I'm going to say especially for clients with eating disorders, but I, I feel like that's a big generalization. So I kind of want to take it back, but I already threw it out there, so for the sake of this conversation, the fear of being seen and being vulnerable and exposed is terrifying for people with eating disorders. Um, and, and this can be a scary practice. I, I remember 
I, when I was in graduate school, I thought that I could balance full-time graduate school and Phoenix Rising yoga therapy training, which some people can, but I found out quickly I cannot. That was too much for me to do at once. But what I did do of it was powerful for me. And what I remember is, and again, I think it's about, it was for me, it was about the feeling of being held by somebody. I was put in a posture and Elisa, I can't remember exactly. I just know that like they were supporting me. My chest was up and my arms were open. And 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 again, right now, some clients might be listening to this and already getting terrified. I wept and wept and wept. I had never, at first I was terrified though. This was the experience that I had. At first I was like, I'm too exposed. Everybody can see my heart. I was very afraid of my heart being seen because I'm very sensitive. And so I was like always protecting my heart and my eating disorder. And, and when I say everyone, I mean, everybody was partnering off. So it's not like I was like in the center with like a big flashlight, you know, big spotlight on me, but I, I, it still felt that way. It felt the whole world could see my heart and were they going to make fun of it? Were they going to laugh at me? Were they good? And I was terrified. And then, like I said, I felt so held by my partner because they were crazy. They were holding me physically. And then I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed because it was okay to expose my heart. And I have to tell you, Elisa, those tears were all the tears for my eating disorder. And that was, I was recovered at that point. I don't think I realized how much I had hid my heart for so long, even prior to the behavior starting. I, I had never, and, and I don't mean this in a body weight size, I'd never felt so light in my life. I actually felt a little high for about 24 hours. It was such a breakthrough for me. And what I was also taught is, and again, this was this was 15 years ago. I don't know if it's changed. And everyone remember, I did not finish the Phoenix Rising Yoga Therapy training, so I can't speak to it entirely, but I was held until the tears stopped. And I, I think we were all told, like, stay with your partner until, like, let them, let them flush that whole experience out. And it was powerful. I don't even have a reason why I shared that story other than it was so powerful. It sounds it. And it, it, I think, again, about you were able to connect with yourself because of another human being that was supporting you. Yes. And that is... Again, the eating disorder could not take us farther away from others. We are in isolation. Our posture is different. Our posture is usually hunched over and closed, protecting heart, protecting self. And yoga opens it up. Yeah. And it's interesting because I talk about that a bit in, in the book chapter that I did with Carolyn Costin's Yoga and Eating Disorders about prone versus supine poses. So prone being face down positioning. So something like a child's pose laying flat, you know, on the belly face down, as opposed to supine, which on the back. 
And there is a very different emotional experience of having more of a turned inward versus turned open. And again, so important that for me to meet clients where they're at, that some are not ready for supine poses where the heart is exposed, the abdomen is exposed. And I talk a little bit about super random. I know we're almost out of time. I had a Welsh Corgi and I was walking her and they have, you know, the little legs and this dog just ran out of its house, came, I was walking my dog. I think I was in middle school, came over to my dog and just started attacking her. And I picked her up and I, what I did was make it so that she then became vulnerable and her whole internal organs were exposed. And I say this because for me, it was this aha moment of four-legged creatures are on all fours and that's how they protect themselves. And me as a human trying to do the right thing for her to pick her up, I actually left her exposed. And I think about that so much with my clients that that's how they feel when they are asked to do poses where they are exposed, where their front body is exposed, it's terrifying and they don't have a way to protect themselves. So offering them something like a child's pose where, you know, for those that don't know, you're kind of hugged into yourself or instead of Shavasana being flat on their back, being more belly down. I've also found clients kind of meeting in both worlds is being on their back, but hugging their knees into their chest can be a little bit more protective for them. So that, I know it's kind of a random image to imagine, but it was so tangible and real of what it feels like to be put in a situation where you can't protect yourself. Mm. Mm. Be- before we go, because we are going to have to wrap up in a little bit, can you say a little bit more about what you wrote in the chapter and what, what so listeners know, like the name of the book, what the chapter was about? Because it was a beautiful book. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, Carolyn Costin and, um, oh, I got to take a peek, Joe Kelly. (laughs) Joe Kelly um, wrote a book, Yoga and Eating Disorders. Phenomenal book. Lots of different chapters in there and varying perspectives. And mine really was on telling the stories and the voices of clients, obviously anonymously, but giving voices to their experience. And I highlighted both clients within eating disorder treatment centers and outpatient and their journey with yoga and through this lens of looking at practices that were more restorative in nature, practices that were more strong in nature and powerful and requiring them to show up in a way that they they were being asked to stand up. They were being asked to um, be really strong in their bodies and then the partner yoga practice. So essentially using their words and their language for how yoga made an impact on them. And for so many of them, as we're talking about, it started off very off-putting, very scary. I've had clients that, as you're sort of mentioning, have wept through entire practices and they keep showing up and they keep finding the benefits of being more present in their bodies, not about changing their bodies. I think that is something too, that is so different from exercise and kind of following up from your question earlier that we're not practicing yoga to change our bodies, where I think so much with exercise is about changing the body, but about being aware of their bodies and their feelings that come up with yoga and having a safe space Again, yoga is something that 
you don't have to go to a gym for, you don't have to have equipment for, that it's really accessible within your own home. And so for so many of the clients that I highlighted in there was also how they took what they were doing in maybe a treatment center environment and how they actually brought it into their life, their everyday life. So beautiful. Really, Elisa, everything. I, I, I could just talk I could just talk forever with you about this just and also with you because I adore you. Although we are going to have to start winding down. Is there anything before I ask you your final question? Is there anything that I didn't ask that you'd like to share? Anything you just want to say before we before we start closing up the the interview? I don't think so. I think just this was a joy to talk with you as you said I love to talk with you more. I do offer virtual yoga on, I call them select Sundays. It's not every Sunday, but that is something I'm doing. If anyone ever wants to join me, if you ever want to join me, it's a really fun cross-continental class. I'm finding I have students in California, students in Idaho, I have students in New York, Texas, Florida. It's been really fun. Again, another perk of a tele, tele world. <laughs> Yes, yes. And as people know, they can find all of Elisa's information um, on the webpage. I think that's what it's called, a webpage. I don't know. I'll have to ask, I'll have to ask Jen. I think I think that's what it is. So anyway, okay. Now that we've clarified that, Elisa, as always, I have to ask a final, final question. And my question for you is if you were a character in a movie, book, or television show what genre would you live in? You know what, that question is a great question. And I go so many places, which character, which genre, which time? So I, I kind of joke with myself, I tend to catch on to shows about a decade after they have become popular. <laughs> so my newest, um, it's a guilty pleasure, so to speak, has been Gilmore Girls. I have fallen in love with the world of Gilmore Girls. And as you may know, I where I lived in California, my husband and I lived in California, was called Pleasanton. And it's a very similar town to where Gilmore Girls takes place. It's called Stars Hollow. And it is just this beautiful, idyllic community. But I think for me, what really stands out is the community. There, Everybody kind of knows each other. Yes, there's some busybodies, but it's more that there's a connection in a community. And that's something that I miss so much right now, just in our world. And as you mentioned, conferences and family and community is something I miss. So I think it would be classified as a, a dramedy. I think it is a, a drama and a comedy. I also found out Gilmore Girls is the same creator as the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And there is just this sense of wit and fast paced, a strong female lead. And Gilmore Girls focuses on a grandmother, a mother, and a daughter. And so there's also this intergenerational relationship and trauma and drama and you know humor and fun it's just a really it's a fun show but I would say a a, a dramedy <laughs> I love the way you answered that so fully <laughs> it was a little all over the place <laughs> no and I mean it like I love when people say like and this is why so I just oh thank you so much thank you thank you for having me Thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. 
All right, everyone, that does it for another episode of, oh boy, everyone, I almost said everybody loves Raymond again. (laughs) So now you know my comedy. (laughs) Okay, even though I know Jen is not going to edit this out, take two. So that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. Bye-bye. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week. <laughs>